All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. You know, all of this is with the backdrop of institutionalization for the two core assets that are coming probably in the next like seven to eight months, uh, if not sooner than that. Um, <clears throat> how much they will actually move, how much the inflows will actually be remains to be seen. You know, everybody has their yes. Um, but I, I think just with that backdrop, um, you've got so many positive catalysts. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I want to share something that Blockworks has been cooking up for these last couple of months. March of this coming year in London, Blockworks is hosting DAS London, the largest institutionally focused conference in all of crypto. Goldman, JP Morgan, 0.72, all in one room so you can know what the big money is doing. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. It'll take you right over to the homepage and use Bell20 for 20% off. I will see you in sunny London town in March. All right, everyone. Uh, we are back. I don't know if that's another episode of Bell Curve or the industry as a whole. <laughs> Such a dorky joke. It's both. We got Michael's, Michael's one and two here. What's up, buddy? Doing well, doing well. Uh, you know, once again, we've shed the dead weight. We have the streamlined podcast ready to go. Lean and mean, baby. Lean and bean. Holding up the numbers, you know, for the pod. Doing what we can. Um... Yeah, man, it's been a good week. It's been a good week. Um, I guess my, I think I actually asked this to Vance the last time we recorded together, but, you know, can't ignore what's going on price-wise here. I guess my, my question for you is, are we back? What's the what's the vibes on the ground? Well, first off, I think you can and probably should ignore what's happening with prices. Um, the, the big news this week was frankly just like not price action. I think it's just all the positive momentum from announcements to launches. Now there's rumors of more spot ETFs in particular, BlackRock uh, apparently filed their um, <clears throat> their application with the state of Delaware to have their trust. They haven't officially filed their spot ETH ETF application yet, but it's expected that that's impending. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. It, the, the sentiment here is there's just a lot of positive momentum. Um, also happening coincidentally <clears throat> on the one year anniversary of the FTX blow up, um, you know, and, and I don't know if there's a specific day that you can point to, but this week, last year, I mean, just thinking back oh 12 God. months, how far yeah. things have changed, um, you know, there was a, there was a non-zero possibility that the industry was done at the end of last year. <clears throat> Nobody knew where the bottom would drop, what was left to drop who was left to drop. Um, feels great to put a lot of that in the rear view. Um, and I think it kind of culminated in a lot of ways with either the rulings against SBF. Yep. I tend to agree with that. I think that was, um, I think pe people now there's a little bit of hindsight bias and everything looking back and lots of people coming out and saying, yeah, we never really liked SBF, but the, the brand that, that SBF had and FTX was, I mean, it was right up there. And even after, you know, going, we have to rewinding the clock back three arrows when that, when that first news first started to break, everyone was like, oh, this doesn't seem right. This, this just feels wrong. Uh, but then even, even after that suspicion, you start to look around and wonder who else is whole here. I mean, I don't think anyone believed really when the rumors started to, 
surface about FTX. They just built such a solid brand. Um, and I actually do want to just as opposed to sort of as an interesting hypothetical. I don't want to start with this, but I, there, there's talk right now. There are a couple of bidders out there uh, bidding for FTX. So I, I talked to actually Mark Yusko uh, today. He's, uh, you know, figure is one of their port codes right. and uh, they're, they're bidding. Uh, Bullish is bidding as well. So it'd be curious to kind of game out like what a restart would look like and what the brand would, would sort of be. But um, I guess I would like to hear, Michael, from, from your perspective, um, maybe the two constituents that you talk to the most, both on the entrepreneurial side of things um, and then also on the sort of LP interest side of things. So maybe starting on the entrepreneurial side. So uh, you know, Miles, um, you know, one of my good buddies who's our, our sixth man here uh, on this show, you know, I was talking to him uh, from his seat at Reverie and he was saying like some of the deals, like the the deal flow just in the last couple of weeks has really picked up and he's starting to see like very cool stuff uh, sort of come onto his plate where before he really had to dig around. It's it's sort of noticeably picked up. I'm, I'm curious what um, what things look like in the in the private markets from your perspective. Yeah. So I think it's kind of the tale of of two different cities in the private markets right now. You have a lot of people who, a lot of companies who raise money, maybe seed capital, early stage capital in 2021 with a projected 18 month runway. Um, and second half of this year was a lot of those people having to come back to market and frankly, just not really seeing success. Um, not enough traction had been made. Um, industries, you know, if you're an infrastructure provider, you're waiting for the users to come, you're waiting for the apps to develop. Um, and so, you know, the metrics aren't always going to be positive there. Um, but on the flip side of that, I think you have a lot of new ideas and new directions. And so if you're starting from ground zero, I, I know, um, you know, Naraj, formerly of Polychain, announced his fundraise yesterday. Um, you know, there, there's still sort of initial capital fundraises that are exciting, getting done. And my, my like basic understanding is that they will be met with more uh, bullish perspective going forward. And the timing of that could be really, really positive. I think the last 18 months, you know, has been pretty negative, hard to survive through that period of time, um, especially if you need to raise. And so we're, we're deal flow has definitely picked up. Um, it's, it's just a lot of sort of the haves and the have nots at this point. Um, so there's a lot that are, you know, disqualified by default. Um, but there's still a lot that's really interesting. I, I'd, I'd say the other stuff too is <clears throat> there's things that are happening and working on chain, which make investment cases, even from a venture perspective, um, you know, and venture perspectives are things that could go, you know, <clears throat> 20 to 100x type return profiles. Um, and, and those are things that exist on chain. And um, maybe instead of investing in the equity, you're actually, you know, working with the treasury to buy tokens or, or buying tokens on the secondary market. Um, so, the universe of opportunity from a venture investment perspective is vast. Um, on your point uh, around the FTX uh, potential uh, rebuild, um, we went through a lot of this last year as well. Um, there were a ton of companies that were going through bankruptcy proceedings. I believe that uh, it's closed and it's all done. Um, but I think Mike Arrington put together a coalition to rebuy Celsius and respin re that. Um, so I, I think we're going to start to see some of these things come out of uh, bankruptcy proceedings and, and receivership, settle all of the you know creditor claims and kind of uh, put a new foot forward. What I will find to be really interesting and FTX, you know, to your point on brand building, definitely had the biggest brand, also had the biggest brand blow up. You know, what do you do? Do you take the tech? Do you take 
you know, any remaining members of the team? Do you take the brand and run with it? Uh, like, what are the residual values? Um, because creditors are going to get made back whole on any assets as much as they can up to 100%. <clears throat> and that'll take a long time. Um, so my big question with all of these, these like respinnings are just like, what do you move forward with? Um, and and kind of what do you keep and what do you shed? So I, I'm fascinated with the bankruptcy proceedings. I I am as well. I okay. So well, one the other thing that I would have to imagine is that some of these bankruptcy proceedings are actually getting made easier by the run up in prices. Right, a lot of the collateral that folks had on these, you know, the Celsius of the world or the FTX or whatever, the the assets were were crypto assets for the most part. So liquidity going up, uh, token price going up, that's got to be good. Um, I would imagine it's maybe. Easy uh, <laughs> it's probably good for the for the bankruptcy. Uh, um, I guess the owners of the bankruptcy or the the debtors in the bankruptcy because. Uh, but probably terrible for the creditors. And you know, most of the people that are creditors are people who deposited, to your point, crypto into these ecosystems, lost their crypto. The thing that they want back is uh, uh, returns in crypto form. Um, and like I said, we, we kicked the tires pretty hard on, on some of these options, started talking to unsecured creditor groups, started trying to piece together you know, what these models could look like. Every single one of them, and I was just listening to a podcast with a couple of DCG creditors as well, and um, or, or sorry, Genesis creditors. Um, <clears throat> all they want, you know, if you deposited ten Bitcoin, they just want their ten Bitcoin back, or as close to that as possible. They don't want, you know, twenty one thousand dollars per Bitcoin in the form of cash paid out over the next four years, and that's what you're looking at if if you you know ultimately get something back. And so the cash denomination, the USD denomination for bankruptcies. I think it actually hurts way more than it helps. Sure, it helps get that percentage dollar back, but I, most of these situations are on the day of bankruptcy, you take a snapshot and that's the dollar basis that you're working back towards. Oh, dude, I did not know that. That's terrible. Man, I did not realize that. I, I think it's actually pretty painful for the people who are watching this you know, price run up. Ooh. All right. Well, never mind then. I, I just assumed that they'd be getting paid back in kind, uh, but that sucks. Um, okay, uh, never I mean, mind. If then. you put Bitcoins in and the Bitcoins aren't there, it makes it even harder to buy those Bitcoins back and give them back. Yeah. All right. Good point. All right. Let, let's talk about what um, an, an FTX restart actually could look like, even just from a like strategic sort of standpoint. Because when I, when I think about the FTX, the asset that exists today, you could kind of subdivide that into there's the brand, right? There's the and honestly, I think that's kind of an interesting question, whether or not that's been wholly destroyed. Um, then there's the existing customer base. So I would actually probably imagine that if like there's some percentage where if you restarted that bad boy and you are sort of made whole, maybe a little of incentive, like some customers will obviously take whatever funds they have and immediately move, but some will probably stay. Um, and then the other one is the tech stack. And I've that's the one that I just have no proprietary information on. I know FTX, the whole last bull market, we were like, oh, they're such a good risk engine and yada, yada. But it sounds like it was just Alameda on the back end, just eating losses and uh, performing liquidations themselves. So maybe that's not the case. But the rest of those, the other two components actually could be sort of compelling for someone that was thinking about starting an exchange or that's part of their strategic roadmap. And, you know, the first question that I have for you would be around the brand, because even when I think about something like even for everything that FTX has done, I still, as a crypto native, feel differently about FTX than I do about Celsius. Even though ostensibly they kind of did the same thing, those two things are different in my mind because 
FTX at one point just had such a stellar brand. I think they really did. I think they had like a really blue chip, very premium brand. And I, I just, I'm sort of wondering now to myself, I didn't have any money on FTX. I actually never used it, but I do wonder to myself, like if I was a user, would I go back? Would I, if I lost some money, but then I kind of got made whole again and I was really sure that there was new management, would I, would I stay there? I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Um, <clears throat> uh, so it's such a good question. Um, I think one of the hardest things to do in crypto is to break out in terms of just notoriety or awareness. And to your point, FTX is going to have the highest level of notoriety and awareness. The question though is, is that positive or is that negative? Right. And in a lot of ways, I think, you know, people talk about brand building as, you know, just having the best positive reaction with their customers and, you know, maintaining that customer relationship through positive interaction after positive interaction. I think there's an element of it that just because you are notable, you're at least going to have an in to be able to get in front of potential customers. And how many of the, you know, I don't know how many, let's say 100,000 people, or, or sorry, uh, 10 million people used FTX. Um, how many of those people would come back? No idea. So hard to tell. I think a lot of that, frankly, depends on how uh, well the process goes through bankruptcy asset proceedings. If you get 85, 90 cents on the dollar back, and maybe it's denominated in USD, but you get some crypto and some asset, like I, I can imagine you go back and you say, maybe this is worth a shot again, because you've got, <clears throat> you know, where else can I do some of the things that you were allowed to do on FTX? It's not really possible uh, for you to get a new Binance account because they've shut down, um, you know, opening up new accounts for people um, and, and KYC restrictions are, are at the highest. And maybe there's some smoke or there's some fire where there's that smoke right now. And maybe that brand is declining uh, in a certain way. It, maybe you want to be able to trade perps on assets that <clears throat> you don't have access to in the US. Like there could be a reason why people come back. I, I'm just so hard pressed to like actually think that that would be a sustainable business over time. You could probably start with the FTX brand to break through, but I, I think you'd have to change it pretty soon thereafter. I think it's a, but in a, yeah. So I, I agree with, I agree with you in my like rational thought process, but I weirdly still, when I like just listen to my emotional side, like I sort of still think of FTX as a cool, I know this sounds so weird. It's like not a bad brand. Like, let me, let, let me give you an example. So so Jason and I, um, you know, we do a lot of work with advertisers. And one of the things that we'll do is sit down with a founder and be like, what is a success story of a really great brand in crypto that you love? Like that you just think like, man, if I could just do what this company did, this brand, like that would be an amazing success story in the standpoint. And we sat down with one today. It's very like new, up and coming, like very cool. You know, people would, would know their name. And I asked that question. I was like, what's a great brand success story? And actually, the first one they said was Eigenlayer, but then the other one was like they thought about. It, they were like, honestly, before they blew up, FTX like really crushed it. And like what they did super well was that they were a big company, but they did a really good job of like the memes. They didn't take themselves too seriously. They had a good brand. And I just even after all this shit, like Celsius wouldn't use it in a million years. If someone like John J. Ray, that was like a beast tradfi guy, that was kind of good, like took over FTX, I'd probably be like. I don't know. I'd be more inclined, be more inclined to. Um, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> you know, um, I, okay. So going back to it, the three assets, you got the tech stack, 
question that does the tech stack still include the back door or not? You know, TBD. <laughs> <laughs> Better not. Better yeah, not. But, okay, so this is my point. Um, you know, you've got the brand and then you got the customer list. The brand obviously was huge. It turns out if you spend hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, in anything, you could you could build a pretty decent sized brand if, if you if money is no object. Um, and uh, but I, I think the the customer trust is just eroded because so much of this is based around if you think about what is what makes a successful crypto exchange, <clears throat> it is um, liquidity and it's security. And that's basically it. You know, functionality, I think, is it, you can kind of differentiate on functionality, but the bedrock of what makes a successful crypto exchange is liquidity and, and security. They've completely eroded their trust and security. Uh, and so I, there would have to be something. And, and, you know, liquidity is something that begets liquidity. You're going to have to get market makers back on. You're going to like the investment dollars just to be able to get that liquidity back is potentially insurmountable. So <clears throat> I, I'm just of the mindset that someone may start a crypto exchange with a customer list of FTX, but I don't think it's going to have the tech stack um, or at least the, the majority of it. And I don't think it's going to have the brand FTX um, just because there, it's it's so tarnished at this point. Yeah. Yeah. You're probably right. And you know, the counterpoint to what I was just saying is that if, if you consider these exchanges uh, bank-like, I mean, no bank has ever paused withdrawals and then ever survived. Like you, once you break that trust, it's a red line and, yeah, no one ever recovers from that. So probably right. But, you know, people are still bidding on it. So it'll be interesting to see what people end up doing. Um, <clears throat> there, there's yeah. definitely some residual value in some of those assets. Um, yeah. And I'm sure people are taking a pretty hard look at it. Um, and, and you know, there's also a lot of interesting assets on their balance sheet in the receivership of the bankruptcy, too. So what they kind of like package together and how they kind of want to parcel this out, I It'll be really interesting to see how it how it comes out. But I mean, to your point, um, you know, bullish the the uh, the exchange that seems to have never was. Um, I, that is a case in point example of how hard it is to break through without any sort of brand or notoriety or awareness or hundreds of millions of dollars of marketing spend. Um, you kind of like I, I don't know. Like, do you know anyone who's <clears throat> who's ever you know played around with bullish? I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think they have like a pretty sterling like investor list, like Alan Howard and Mike Novogratz and all that was, was involved. I'm not, I'm not really a trader myself, so I'm not a hundred percent. To be honest, I kind of have this blind spot about who actually uses what exchange. Cause I just don't trade that much. But, but I do think like to your point about like, yes, everyone can build a brand if they have infinite money, but I will say there are a lot of companies in crypto that basically have had infinite monies that like have not built a brand. Um, I think you you could look at a lot of the centralized exchanges that have spent definitely hundreds of millions of dollars and don't have the same brand. Um, so they did something right. But so I, I guess we'll just have to see where it all shakes out. It's kind of a fun like strategy question. I think I'm actually going back on what I argued before and agreeing with you that maybe there's some residual amount of customers. You'd probably have to change the name. And yeah, maybe it's worth something to someone. Um, probably at a, at a really steep discount. You'd have to basically rebuild big parts of the tech stack. And it would probably have to be in the strategic roadmap of some company like Figure, um, who obviously has a, that's part of their strategic vision for whatever they're building. So, um, okay, I've got uh, another question for you here, which is, I mean, so let's just, obviously it's it unwise to assume anything in terms of price that this is going to continue or something like that. Actually, last time, um, uh, in, on the last episode we did with Vance, we we're kind of going through like 
almost like a bull market checklist um, of like things that you would be looking for. I think I think the thing that's starting to resonate with me or sort of give me like flashbacks to 2018, 2019 is this kind of like grinding price action that Bitcoin is doing right now, which just like reminds me of and even today. So today we're recording this on Thursday, the 9th. Um, Bitcoin had this really steep run up, which is almost definitely, I mean, just looks a lot like the kind of gamma squeezes that used to happen um, in the like 2020 sort of time period where uh, option sellers got cut off sides and they got squeezed for it. So it's like these sort of little things are kind of um, reminding me of, of that time period. Obviously, no guarantee that it's going to play out the same. What, what are some of the things that you sort of look for or would give you confidence to be like, oh, okay, like that's another, like check that box. Like this is something else I'd be looking for to give me confidence that we're in a different regime than we've been in for the last uh, couple of years. Yep. Um, so I actually don't think that we're at the point of like <clears throat> the gamma squeeze, like shorts having to cover their shorts um, or like option sellers having to cover their their call options that they sold. I I think broadly we're starting to see a recognition of um, what is set to probably happen, which is institutional capital moving into spot ETFs. Um, you know, to take it back to where we started, uh, Van Eck and uh, 21 share or uh, ARC um, announced their uh, spot ETH ETFs, I think uh, like a month ago, September 6th, um, May 2024 is when those final deadlines are due. Um, <clears throat> so, in a lot of ways that you see, okay, Bitcoin is the first mover. Bitcoin is going to be the biggest, you know, it's going to attract the most attention in dollars. Um, then it's like, okay, well, what's next? And I think that, okay, what's next is sort of what is playing out right now. And um, I think it's institutional, probably sideline capital that's been sitting around for a while that's making moves in. And the reason why I say this is, um, so the, ETH, uh, tw uh, BlackRock ETF was announced or is expected to be announced soon. They filed for the formation documents. Um, but one of the more interesting things that's been going on is what's been going on in the Grayscale Chainlink Trust. And I don't know if you've seen this, but the Grayscale Chainlink Trust, so, you know, it's a trust. So there's a, a market value for the actual trust itself. There's an underlying value for how much link is actually in that trust. Like this thing has completely dislodged. The trust is up like 500, 600% and, and completely surpassed basically the, the NAV oh of that trust. I mean, it's a fascinating chart. But you think about, okay, who actually has access to that grayscale chain link trust? It's institutional and it's, um, you know, traditional finance people. Um, and so I think you're starting to see, you know, some of the, okay, Bitcoin's going to happen. Well, what's next questions being asked? Um, and it, I think it's, it's driving a lot of market momentum, but that's not in my mind, like, yeah, here we go. <laughs> like, that's just so funny. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, yeah. and you know, that's an institutionalized product. Um, and, and what we're looking at here is I, I, I think Chainlink, you know, at least on this chart is probably about $14. But the Chainlink Grayscale trust price is something like $45. Yeah. And, and that is the difference between, you know, the market price of the trust itself and the underlying holdings per share, um, which is supposed to be the representative, like, fair market value of, of the trust. Um, yeah. There have been some so, pretty like, big... 
premiums to nav on some closed end uh grayscale products but that is about as big as one i've ever seen I, I think. hilarious um yeah. i would also um uh a person on our team adam um formerly of Chainlink, sent me a, a hilarious uh screen grab of um thousands of link marines in a twitter spaces um it, and the twitter space title was uh 14 waiting room and you've got thousands of people in this Twitter space is just singing to each other and like doing these like chants and it was like so funny. Wait, and, and like I've forgot we've got Chainlink God coming on the pod. I was week. gonna say, I, I'm, yeah, I, I connected I'm, with him. I I'm just I honestly think it's one of these areas that I've just like slept on, and I was like I should talk to someone about just about this. And uh, he's a really smart guy. I was like we should do something on Chainlink. So that's actually pretty fortuitous timing um we'll have we'll have tons of fun conversations next week as well um but so all, all of this is to say like i don't think that this is the blow off the top like dm squeeze where you see it rocket up and then you know get sold off at the top like it's gonna ebb and flow of course this is the like animal spirits are starting to come back into the market you're starting to see these green shoots of cult-like experiences and mimetic movements um and I think, you know, all of this is with the backdrop of institutionalization for the two core assets that are coming probably in the next like seven to eight months, uh, if not sooner than that. Um, <clears throat> how much they will actually move, how much the inflows will actually be remains to be seen. You know, everybody has their guess. Um, but I, I think just with that backdrop, um, you've got so many positive catalysts. Um, so one of the questions you asked was what are you know entrepreneurs saying um this is also the time of year where we have all of our like end of year hey let's check in lp calls with like our biggest lps and vance is actually at an lp um event right now um and kind of the broad sentiment across the board there is everybody is getting ready and they know that things kind of come back on you know in the next like two to three months um, or six months. And, um, so I, I think the institutions are, you know, the smart money, they're the fastest horse. They're the ones that are moving quickest. Um, and, and they're going to start to fill bags, um, ahead of all these positive catalysts that are, that are, you know, six months away. Yeah. Um, I, t okay. I've got some, some sort of follow-up questions there. So in terms of the, some like the idiosyncratic, like green shoots, uh, bubbles, there's like chain link. And it's actually funny. So one of our analysts went to this Goldman Sachs conference, um, this funny little anecdote, just talking about Chainlink and Sergey, you know, Sergey Nazarov, the Chainlink founder was speaking there. He said of everyone at this whole Goldman Sachs conference, like people were swarming this guy, like everyone yeah. wanted to talk to this guy, which is just funny. And look, I mean, Chainlink has been has been rallying like crazy. There's the Solana thing that's taken off uh, quite a bit. Um and then I guess there's, I'm trying to think about other, uh, I mean, I guess those are really the, the big two. And then there's Bitcoin and Bitcoin's the sort of institutionalization narrative. And and we just got the ETH news sort of just dropped today, but it looks like that April is sort of the rough timeline that people are now thinking about. So there's kind of a dual yeah. institutional narrative and then more green shoots, maybe crypto, crypto natives moving. I mean, the other one, and it was reported on last week, I, th I can't remember, I think Blockworks covered it, but <clears throat> there's been sort of a resurgence of... Um, AXS, Ronin, SLP, um, which are Web3 gaming assets, like the these subcategories are starting to make a comeback after, you know, the 99% sell-offs that they've all gone through. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, a, a 300%, 400%, 500% move upwards just means that you're only 90, 95% down. <laughs> but, you know, it's a three, 400% return off of the low. So, like, these aren't the crazy times. This is really just like the beginning of the start. And um, that, that's kind of how I would describe where we are in the cycle. And frankly, it feels like 2019 again, like the end of 2019. Um, you know, you, you had these little bull trends and then it would drop for a couple of weeks and then you go up and, you know, this, this stuff starts to take effect over a couple of these cycles because more and more people will start to notice it. And, and that's when the momentum starts to shift. Got it. Let me, let me ask you this. So what I feel like what we saw in the last market cycle, the, the rotation went something like this. Bitcoin was the firm leader, right? Like spot Bitcoin price sort of led everything. ETH trailed a little bit, but there was a period of time where it was like almost like one for one catch-ups. Like Bitcoin would run first, then the market would rebalance ETH up, and then ETH started to run ahead of Bitcoin. And then that really like rotated into alts. And that's when you had like the crazy Axie run, Solana, some of these like, honestly, like Cardano and BNB ran, ran super hard then too. Uh, and then the sort of NFT craze, all of that kind of stuff. I feel like back then people, it wasn't as widespread the knowledge of that playbook. Um, but now I feel like that's more within recent memory of everyone watching that cycle happen. So you're, to your point about like institutions asking what happens next, do you think that plays out the same way that it did last time or very similarly, or is it different because people know it now and they're like, oh, I know how this works. And instead of like waiting for alts to run, like I'm just going to skip and go right to alts or something like that. Do you know what I'm, you know what I mean? Um, <clears throat> if we didn't have you know, the thought to be impending uh, Bitcoin ETF followed by the ETH ETF, I would have said, you know, a, a smarter person who's lived through a couple cycles says, oh, Bitcoin's pumping. Great. I'm going to go buy, you know, some index bet on DeFi or Web3 gaming or whatever it may be. Just skip to the final conclusion because, you know, dollars moving into those assets have a, a multiplication effect much higher than Bitcoin or ETH or Solana or anything else. Um, the, the difference though, is I think if we, you know, have what is expected with these ETFs and then what is expected with the inflows, there is going to be a different element, this cycle, which is, um, basically just duration hold of those ETF based assets. Um, and what I mean by this is let's say, um, people who want to buy Bitcoin or ETH are generally able to do it on you know, the platforms that we're talking about, the centralized exchanges, maybe even like the Grayscale Trust. I don't think there's too much activity there though. Um, but if most people wanna buy Bitcoin and ETH, they can. <clears throat> so the ETF products are targeted at a different audience. And that different audience is largely made up of money managers. And the way that either a money manager works um, in terms of asset allocation and you know providing their services or you know, managing retirement accounts or automated, you know, retirement accounts is that they allocate based off of a percentage basis. And that means that, you know, people who are contributing to their, you know, 401k, their IRA, or they're adding more money with their, with their investment manager, <clears throat> every single time that they do that, every two weeks they get a paycheck, that means that there's sort of this consistent buy in terms of, you know, that 1%, that 3% going to Bitcoin, going to ETH, et cetera. Um, which builds a base of duration of hold that I think we haven't seen yet in previous cycles. You know, if, if Bitcoin went from 
5k to 25k there's bound to be a lot of the people who bought it at 5k who are like great i'm gonna take the 5x and you know pair back and see what i want to do next but that doesn't exist as much in the the professionally money money managed industries um maybe there are people who will trade the etf you know based off of vol or based off of swing trading that's going to happen but I, the the majority of people i think are going to be buy and hold yeah you know what just anecdotally on that point about institutions um so we you know we we put out different different strands of of content across different channels like some of our stuff is really crypto native some of it's really institutionally focused and honestly for a while the more crypto native stuff has been trouncing the institutional Recently, within like the last like two months ish, there's been a change in sort of what people are interested in and listening to, and um, that also has been mirrored. So we've got this com- coming conference, uh, Das London, which you advance mm-hmm. will be at. Inst- it's very, in- it's gonna be huge, gonna be gonna be great. Uh, and you get a Bell t- BC. Oh shoot, I forgot the actual discount code. But you get a discount code. <laughs> click the link. In the- <laughs> click the link in the in the bottom for your tickets. But the the reception to this conference has been like we've been getting on the phone with like hey just just kicking the tires of like the goldmans the jp morgans the 0.72s these big funds like hey would you be interested in speaking they're like yes like not like oh yeah like uh, like the interest is and i i feel like just it's more anecdotal evidence to your the point that you were making about uh, just people being sort of ready and moving off the sidelines and wanting to get back into the mix and realizing that these big catalysts are close. And we haven't even talked about the having, but the having is also, I think, in the zeitgeist more than it has been in previous cycles. Like we <laughs> last having, we weren't getting notes from, you know, uh, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley being like the having isn't priced in yet. You know, like I that's, mean, you that's got, you scene. got Joe and Aaron Ross Sorkin talking about it live on MSNBC on CNBC. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's crazy. That's it's crazy. That's um, uh, and and you know to be clear, like historically, it's been eighteen months post happening for that you know massive run up um, and the realization of it, mostly because you've got a bunch of miners and, and really the happening you know removing I don't know probably like six or seven billion dollars at this point uh, worth of supply overhang from the market. Um, anecdotally, I think you know one of the not miscalculations but um, misunderstandings of twenty twenty three was just how much latent. ETH supply was left within miners. And I think that, um, you know, they've been selling out over the course of the year. And I think we've talked about this uh, on previous episodes, but, you know, you had that large call seller um, a couple of weeks ago, which kind of initiated the run up. Uh, there are all these strikes at the end of October at like 1700, 1750, which had to be covered. I think um, Bitcoin goes through similar cycles in that. You know, proof of work to proof of stake represented just a total shut off, right? Um, and everybody expected, well, as soon as it shuts off, like you're not going to have any, you know, miners selling because they've already been selling. I think that that was wrong, and I think that that's why you see an 18 month lag historically on the Bitcoin happening. It's because a lot of these miners hold on to their Bitcoin to find opportune moments to sell. Um, and so I think you're, it's going to take the happening will be a big moment, but it's really the effect you know, months and quarters after the happening where we're going to see positive, more positive tr- price trajectory, I would say. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think you might be right about that. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I want to share something that Blockworks has been cooking up for these last couple of months. March of this coming year in London, Blockworks is hosting DAS London, the largest institutionally focused conference in all of crypto. We are gathering 1,200 of the world's largest asset managers. So think TradFi macro funds, crypto native funds, big allocators, and financial institutions. So banks, payment processors, et cetera, all in one spot. It's very rare to get the likes of Goldman, JP Morgan, 0.72, whatever, all in one room so you can know what the big money is doing. We're diving into the themes that they care about. So we're talking about the intersection of macro and crypto, where we are in the cycle, real-world assets, so everything from stable coins to on-chain treasuries to tokenized assets. It's going to be a blast. But the other reason you really want to go is London, baby. Center of the world at one point. You got pub culture, you got fish and chips, great beer. It's going to be a blast. So because you're such great listeners to Bell Curve, there's a code BELL20 that's going to get you 20% off. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. It'll take you right over to the homepage. You'll see all of our speakers and use Bell 20 for 20% off. Ticket prices are going up soon. Make sure you go use that code. I will see you in sunny London town in March. Do you ever, um, I actually, I spoke to Adam back um, last week. He, there's a really interesting uh, chart of uh, Bitcoin hash rate, which has bucked this, this trend that it used to have of like, usually what happens with uh, hash rate and price, the relationship there is that price leads hash rate. So the price goes up, uh, you know, just like in any sort of commodity producer relationship, the commodity producer, in this case, the miners uh, try to chase that price. So it brings more hash rate online um, and then it ends up. Yeah. So it, there's that, that kind of lead lag relationship. But if you look at like, this is the chart of what that looks like this last cycle, which has been a massive deviation, which is you know, get up on my screen here. Um, like the price has been tanking, but hash rate is just like a oh, one wow. way, a one way uh, stream up, huh. which is really, um, really bizarre. And I asked Adam back about this and his his explanation was one of the things that changed in the mining industry previous. Uh, and this might explain some of the ETH overhang as well as the availability of credit around this time. So basically, as, as this was going on, there was a bunch of... Uh, you know, mining equipment that got purchased, uh, you know, by having access to credit. And then what happens is there's like a a lag in between when that gets purchased and when you actually get the ASICs delivered. So if you get, if you can imagine like a bunch of ASICs getting delivered, like right around here, well, okay, now it's kind of a sunk cost. You know, the market is turned. You probably can't even sell those ASICs if you wanted to. And so it's kind of like, well, I might as well just turn these things on and and mine. Uh, Hence why it's Hmm. just been such a brutal... Uh, road for Bitcoin miners recently, actually. And you see this weird divergence in the relationship between price and, and hash rate. But That's interesting. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> I um, I intuitively understand that. I, I think the other thing, so hash rate aside, um, the other thing I think about in terms of the last 18 months, um, and there's going to be natural sort of like and so many people put out these analysis of like Metcalf's law analysis. So what's the, you know, the network value of Bitcoin or what's the network value of any of these ecosystems? And you're valuing them based like, uh, you know, like they're a network. And, you know, the the intuition there is that your networks grow proportionally to the number of people who are in the network. And as these networks or network value grows. And so you can kind of assume, you know, basic understanding of, of where value should um, aggregate. But the one thing that we don't ever really think about or apply to that is the structural process of removing major players 
from the ecosystem and the structured selling that was required to do so was just such a massive exogenous effect to the progression of that process that we're probably undervalued to where those, you know, network valuations would um, forecast right now. Um, And it's because we're still picking up, barely still picking up the pieces from all of these things. Um, So I, I think, you know, in, so I think of it in two ways. There's the there's the hash rate that is, you know, that's something that's really fascinating and credit to go buy Bitcoin miners. I mean, maybe it's a good time to be buying Bitcoin miners um, if there's if there's excess supply. But um, then there's also the question of like, if you remove the massive blowups and, you know, three arrows just doesn't just fades away. FTS just fades away. They don't absolutely get want um you know are we where are we where we are right now if those two things didn't happen hard to know but i would definitely say no yeah i tend to agree with you there i is it a good time to buy bitcoin miners like i don't know but they blockchain does have this this product actually where they notice there's a honestly you know what it's similar to the relationship of uh we've talked about this before about how like public market proxies for crypto like coinbase or microstrategy end up running up more and then getting hurt more on the way down because there's this sort of hidden premium um similarly similar to mine equipment so it's like on the run-up it they the value of the asics actually runs up more than bitcoin and then on the way down you, you get it on the way down as well hmm. which kind of makes sense to me because when the price of bitcoin goes up everyone's like oh my god i need these things bitcoin's going up a million dollars and stuff like that so we haven't seen any of those either. We haven't seen any million dollar uh, Bitcoin pricing predictions either. So what are you uh, talking about? Oh, really? Yeah, I haven't seen I haven't seen Michael Saylor that. said five million. Kathy Wood said one point five million. <laughs> All right. Well, I that's I will say I saw Kathy Wood give this ins- it was like twenty we had started that podcast with Pomp uh, off the chain before it was the Pomp podcast. And Kathy Wood was one of the early guests. So this this must have been 2019. And she gave this price prediction for Tesla. She was like, our, ba- our like base case is $700 and our bull case is $4,000. And I was like, well, my jaw, I think my jaw was actually open. I was like, I called Yana after. I was like, dude, I just heard the craziest she said this. And this was pre-stock split and everything. So now it's oh, not even hit. But like, yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, I wouldn't fade Kathy. I'm a, I know people like to hate on her because she makes these big, bold predictions, but I'm a Kathy Wood fan. I like her. Anyone who is a growth investor over the last 18 months had a, a tough time. But I agree. I, I think if you zoom out a little bit, uh, she will be proven right. I agree with that. Um, so, you know, one other thing I'd, I'd be curious to get your sort of take on just as someone in the industry, maybe as, as opposed to something like uh, the actual, actually what happened. But there was a very interesting post from Evgeny Gavoy, who is the CEO at Wintermute, um, about Nier and Aurora this week. So um, basically, uh, Evgeny accused the Nier Foundation and Aurora Labs of failing to redeem $11.2 million in USN stablecoins for USDT as promised under a deal. Um, so basically USN is like a very, it's a very, it's an algorithmic stable coin, very similar to, uh, uh, to Terra Luna. They switched from being an algo stable coin, basically to one that, which is backed by USDT after the collapse of Terra. Um, I guess Evgeny from the Alameda state purchased $11.2 million worth of, uh, USN. And then they basically said, no, we, we actually, um, uh, 
you know, are not going to refund you. Uh, so, so Evgeny made this whole Twitter post. And I, first of all, I thought it was interesting. I have, I have no idea who's right in the situation. It looks like there was, you know, some backstopping of the, from the near foundation of this, of this claim. Um, I thought about this a lot after, you know, when, when FTX blew up and everyone's like, we have to call out bad actors in the future. I'm just like curious what you what you think about that because then people have to like air public grievances and no one really likes doing that. So I don't know if you had any thoughts on the Evgeny post or this idea of like calling people out on Twitter because I see the merits to it for sure, but I also like I could see where it could go wrong too. Just curious to get your your take on the whole thing. Any any sort of perspective that I have here is going to be um, dislodged from any particular events because every single one of these types of situations is so specific. You can't just like yeah. blank blanket say one way or another. Um, listen, there, there have been historically a number of times where um, people in the space have done nefarious things, to say the least. Um, and it, I like, I would guess 95% of them probably go unnoticed or uncared because, you know, it's, it's, you know, the way that they operate, you know, anything from like, you know, it's not working. So we're going to shut it down and return the treasury. Like, maybe you should have kept working harder on it, or maybe there's another way to do this, or, you know, you're just kind of like, okay, as an entrepreneur, I'm going to move on, Um, which is totally fine. But, you know, people may be pissed off about that Um, to like, like rugging something, you know, being able to, to be anonymous on Twitter and, and form a protocol. And this is more DeFi summer days, but like all of those types of situations are, are just not copacetic to straight up fraud. And obviously we've seen that as well. Um, but there are a lot of times where people in the space think that they, you know, can get away with things. And I think it's important, um, when you feel like you have a strong case to fight for that case. And, um, you know, from our perspective, if we were ever put in a situation like that, um, we have a fiduciary duty to our LPs. And we have to make sure that we do uh, as best we can to represent them when we're the ones that are in charge of, you know, assets in question. Um, if, you know, it's business tactics for Wintermute and, you know, near to go after the situation, that's totally fine, too, if they feel the need to. <clears throat> but, you know, pulling on the thread of like public dismay, I think doesn't really ever get that far. You may get a couple people on Twitter to be like... <laughs> that's it. I'm never using, you know, X or Y or Z. Um, but most people are just going to, you know, the press cycle will move on and people will forget about it. Um, and so I think there are other means of enacting, you know, getting right by a situation where you feel wronged. Um, but doing it in, in public, I think is just sort of like a, a last resort, or maybe it's, you know, it's not something that we would want to do. Yeah. I, cause I think it's, I think it's tempting as well. I, by the way, I love Evgeny and Wintermute. I have no knowledge of this at ever. I just, it was the first time I'd, I'd, there was a lot of chatter about that post FTX implosion. It's like, if you see something, say something. And this was the first instance of that, that I publicly saw by someone that I respect a lot and follow. And it was like, Oh, that's kind of an interesting, that's interesting. Um, so I guess we'll, we'll have to see if we see more of that. Um, all right. Last, last question for you. Um, and maybe it could be more of a, broad, almost like hypothetical. But I, I I saw this week that Nier and Polygon released something. Um, so basically Polygon and Nier bringing this ZK Wasm idea uh, to life where they're they're basically simplifying the way that ZK proofs work on on uh, ZK proving works on Nier 
and they're sort of aligning with Polygon, which brings them closer to Ethereum. Frankly, it's a little bit over my head technically, um, so I'm just not even going to touch that. But but here's my question to you, because this is what got me thinking. So there are a bunch of um, protocols like now they're like I'm starting to think about some of these protocols I haven't thought about in a while, like Near Avalanche. I actually do think about this one, but Celestia is a really good example of a new L1. And some of these alt L1s or like alternative layer ones have chosen to sort of counter position against Ethereum. And they've been like, you know what? We're really different. Solana is a really good example of someone that has counter positioned against Ethereum. And others are like, you know what? We're like kind of aligned and like signed and sort of like, you know, uh, like Celestia is one where it's like, I see a lot of the, the sort of researchy events that I go to. It's like Celestia people and Ethereum people and Cosmos is sort of somewhere in the middle. I guess like if you unilaterally had control of a layer one, how would you think about that? Like, would you go the Ethereum alignment route and there are some pros and cons with that strategy or would you go the counter position route where you're like, I'm just totally different in ways X, Y, and Z and this is why I'm different and unique. So, I mean, on the ZK Wasm stuff and near, I literally am looking at a tab or two right now where it's like, okay, I need to read this later. So <laughs> I, I also don't have like full, yeah, yeah, full yeah. context on that one situation. Um, but next week I will. Um, the, uh, I don't know, the, the kind of rudimentary way that I think about it is there, there's two main functions um, for blockchain. There, there's settlement and then there's execution. And execution is, is largely how you're going to interface with either the applications or the customers. And I think we're also, we'll see if this trend continues, but we're starting to see maybe even a third layer, which is the UX. And UX, uh, by and large, is either going to be like a self-custody, or it's going to be sort of like a pseudo-centralized um, hosted experience, depending on what it may be. Um, so like that's the basic layers of the stack in my mind. You've got Ethereum, who is both um, settlement and execution. Um, and then you've got L2s that focus more on execution and transaction throughput um, at the execution layer than they do the settlement. Um, Solana, monolith. So uh, full stack execution settlement. Um, <clears throat> it's also possible now that you can have SVM execution environments that are built on top of the DA or settlement layer of Celestia. Um, so like you're starting to see all the commingling of these different layers based off of different parts of the tech stack for these, for these um, ecosystems. And so it's impossible to say like, I think you should counter position or I think you should align. But what I do think you need to do, and the only way for these blockchains to ultimately get adopted, and uh, it is to define an application category where you have a true advantage. Ethereum, and this is based off of the 2020-2021 uh, uh, you know, run-up in DeFi summer and all of those things, um, they have DeFi. They have internet moneyness. Um, it's where the TVL exists. Um, you know, even look at the TVL chart of Solana, like it, it's not anything comparable. Um, it's where also the best NFTs exist because of the moneyness. Um, so like they, they have kind of taken that, uh, realm of the world. And even today I was trying to like, I, I, we have a wallet and we're trying to like bridge assets and like trying to send Ethereum from L1 to optimism. Like it's still such a clunky experience. Why, like, why can't I, you know, one click swap, uh, you know, point one ETH just to be able to put gas into an unfunded wallet? Like the the experience, the user experiences across these different layers is also garbage. Um, and so I think, you know, Solana is very obviously going after speed 
and throughput. And there will be applications and, and therefore cost. And there will be applications that gravitate towards that. My question is, what will be the first um, that hits that breakout scale? And when will it happen? Um, but like that's the counter positioning that they have. Celestia says, hey, you want to have optimism or Arbitrum execution instead of settling back down to ETH mainnet, like settle on our DA layer. Like that's totally acceptable. Or you can even have ETH mainnet, you know, settle down to Celestia. Um, so I, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is like a very r- rudimentary way of looking at it, but, but that's kind of how I think about it. And it will be defined by the application categories. Like if we look at where all of the games are being built, um, you know, it's not Solana. Um, even though transaction throughput is highest there. Um, so, uh, you know, it seems like Polygon is, is making great strides. Ronin, obviously, that we're talking about, um, making great strides. Um, and and I think we're going to continue to see that kind of application category differentiation. Um, so, yeah, that, that's my quick and dirty on it. Okay, let, let me follow up question for you here, because there's the actual like application, like what these things do and how they all sort of mechanically go together and where they belong in the user flow. But then there's there's this other component of crypto, which is like, it's almost like the distribution mechanism and the importance of community, especially for layer ones. Like one of the things that I think Ethereum got super right, right? It was, I mean, in a sense, a counter position to Bitcoin. That I feel like that maybe takes away from Ethereum. But what I mean by that is like the Bitcoin community is like this really hard, almost like <laughs> religiously, you know, uh, it's almost like a return to like Roman sort of values of, uh, you know, they've got this whole thing going on. You know what I'm talking about? Ethereum's the opposite of that. It was, a, you know, very optimistic, um, very like a hopeful, very research-based. And one of the things that was, I think, attractive about Ethereum is you could very clearly say, this is what makes a Bitcoin person and this is what makes an Ethereum person. I think Solana had that as well. Like they were just like, we are different. And uh, you can, and I, the way that I would just, dis- distinguish it is like they're like engineers they're like more pragmatic more engineering focused um just a different vibe and so i feel like that's kind of an important squishy subjective but still really important like indicator of success for one of these communities where that so that's what i'm kind of trying to get at where it's like you know you you can sort of strike out on your own but there are a lot of these l1s where i look at it and it's like what makes a i don't want to seem like i'm picking on new but i i can't really easily define what this person looks like, like a polygon person, you know? Um, and I, so I wonder about that. I'm like, I, I don't know. It, it's, that might be maybe one of the disadvantages of sort of aligning with Ethereum, so to speak, because you like fail to develop your own person, if that makes sense. Um, <clears throat> so l- let, me, let me play back to you um, and, and change a little bit and tell you more of my perspective. Um, also, just to be clear, like <laughs> we're very bullish on Solana. We invest in the ecosystem across the board. It's just more of like, there are differences. Yeah. And, and that's, that's kind of what I want to hit on. Um, like I remember very distinctly in the 2016, 17, 18, 19 era, um, of all the Bitcoin people came out with pitchforks when Ethereum launched and it was like, you're never going to scale. It's never going to work. DeFi doesn't mean anything. Like we're going to build DeFi on Bitcoin. Like we're going to have NFTs on Bitcoin. It's like, okay, sure. Um, <clears throat> and I, I, I could absolutely see. Uh, I don't think Ethereum will fall subject to the same issue, which is, okay, like other blockchain over there, like good luck, you're never going to be able to do it. I think one of the benefits of being optimistic around your approach to open source development and building blockchains is that there could be many ways that everybody wins. 
And, and it sounds a little bit cliche to say that, but uh, like Solana is going to have its own application categories that are just probably not even feasible on Ethereum. Maybe it's more financial oriented because of the high throughput. Maybe it's more consumer oriented because of the low cost, like just remains to be seen is, is kind of the sentiment that I'm expressing, but it, it will be different. And I think Ethereum also isn't going to come out with pitchforks when, you know, those application categories do emerge. Um, I think they're going to be like, great, you know, like we've got our own stuff going on over here too. Um, so I, I agree with you. I, I, I mean, I, I, if I were to guess, I think probably consumer application categories are, are kind of the next thing to hit um, just because it seems like DeFi and the TVL, at least for now, is is staying on Ethereum. Um, and a lot of the games are trying to tap in to that liquidity. Um, but, you know, the other reason why you would have a blockchain win or lose is because you're able to attract new users. And I, I really do wonder, like, we've lost a lot of people for sure in the last cycle. We're going to gain a ton of net new people in this cycle. Like if you were totally fresh, no dogma, um, no history coming into this ecosystem, where would you go? Um, and, and that's kind of the other angle here too, is like, where are all those net new people coming? Um, because it, it, it could be, you know, a, a totally new platform. It could be Solana, it could be Ethereum. Like that, that's kind of, I think, you know, the, the really important question to answer. Um, and we'll see. Yeah, could be an, could be a totally new platform as well, and that's what I like. One like even outside of like Solana, Bitcoin, Ethereum, I've been thinking about these like kind of like near avalanche ecosystems as well. Because like there's there's so much. That's what I was really asking. I was like, I for some of those which are like big, like very big, um, even some of the layer twos. I, I wonder if this ends up being a factor as well. Like, is there an Arbitrum person versus an Optimism person? I, I kind of think there is a little bit. Like. I just, um, I just, I find the branding element of it pretty interesting. Um, yep. And I, and I, I've been like wondering what, uh, you know, what some of these layer ones, I, I sort of feel like if they're going to make it this cycle and there are a couple that are in limbo that could make it or could not. Um, and it's like, you probably have to do some work defining your, your person and community. And I'll be really, and you know what, there are probably gonna be a bunch of new, new ones that launch. like Monad is, is launching soon. Like that one seems pretty cool. I don't know. I've got no idea, but uh, not financial advice, obviously, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I NFA, just, NFA, I'm, NFA. Just, I'm just interested. I just want to, I'm just curious to see how it all sort of plays out. Um, I mean, I, I do, I will say though, like <clears throat> going back to it, the community development is something to not, uh, scoff at. It's something to really dig into and pay attention yes. to because everyone loves a comeback story. Everybody loves an underdog story. Um, and you may be fresh and new and you're trying to get new people to come over with you. But if you already can build the network effects of having some people there, having some value there, um, it's going to take off. And, and so I think it's not maybe it's not necessarily like what has the best tech or what has the best applications. It just is like what is the best option when when that onslaught of new users comes in and they're like, where do we go? And then that just sort of like the ball, the snowball starts rolling downhill. Yeah, I think you're probably right. All right, partner. I think we can. I think we can call it. This was a, this was a fun one. This is great. Um, see you next week with uh, CLG. Chainlink God, baby. I'm, I'm really pumped for that episode, actually. The Link Marines, are, they're a fun community. Uh, so, be good. <laughs> tell, tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs>